welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we just thank you so much for the gift of your word that we, Miracle of Miracles, can hold in our hands your very words. Your very words, which are inerrant, trustworthy, sufficient, they're readable, they're knowable by the power of your Spirit. And so we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to understand your word. And Lord, as we come here into this place, I know many come with a sense of their own inadequacy or guilt, Lord. There's things that we have done this week that we ought not to have done. There's things that we ought to have done that we haven't done. And so we come before you as those who are repentant, those who have confessed our sins to you and ask you to forgive us, Lord. Fill us again with your Spirit. We ask that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation. And we pray, Lord, that none of that would hinder us opening your word now and and truly enjoying who you are and what you have for us as a church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're going to be in Acts uh, 11 and 13 this morning. We're going to look at the church in Antioch. But I want to give you a little bit of background on the church in Antioch, and I'll start with Jesus. So, uh, if you look at the Gospels, you can see the amazing, incredible life that Jesus led. A life that was so incredible that we're still talking about 2,000 years later, and we're interested in every detail of his life because his life was so utterly unique and fascinating and wonderful. So Jesus lives this amazing life. He dies on the cross on a Friday. Three days, he's in the tomb. He rises. Forty days, he spends walking around with his disciples to show he's alive and well and proving his resurrection. And then he ascends up into heaven bodily as the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. But before he leaves, he says to his disciples something in Acts 1.8. He says this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now at Pentecost, which is 10 days after that, So Acts 2, they do receive power. They receive the Holy Spirit coming upon them and in them to fill them with the ability to witness. And they do witness, but the interesting thing is they don't really go anywhere in the beginning. They kind of stay around. Jesus had told them, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then out to Judea and then to Samaria and the ends of the earth. But they kind of linger, right? They kind of linger there around Jerusalem until Stephen. So Acts 7, Stephen, the wonderful uh, believer, gets martyred. Okay, so he gets killed, and then a persecution breaks out, right? It's chapter 8. Persecution breaks out. Saul's a part of that persecution, soon to be Paul, but when he was not a believer, he was spreading that persecution. People are, are shot out all over the place, and they scatter, and then they begin to be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Something we can learn from that, guys, is that sometimes God uses adversity to get us moving on mission. They apparently needed that. They they were going to linger, but God brought this adversity upon them and scattered them out, and so they scatter out, and they go to Judea and Samaria. And I know many of you guys can probably relate to that, that you were in a place in your life of comfort and ease, not very focused on the mission. God shook up your life in some profound way, and then you were alert, right? And then you were scattering the message of the gospel out. And some of them went as far as Antioch, which is 300 miles away. Now, we're going to be in Acts 11 and 13 looking at that church in Antioch. And the reason why we look at it is a very significant church. This is the church that eventually sent out Saul or Paul and Barnabas out to do those first amazing missions trips and everything. This was the sending church. 
And so Antioch's a great church for us to look at because it's an example of a very healthy church. This is what a healthy church does. A healthy church sends. A healthy church does the things I'm going to describe here. And it's really important for us guys to periodically revisit what the church is. Because we're Americans, and we think we can reinvent anything and make it better. Like, oh yeah, the church thing, oh, I know how I can make that better. And, and so we start monkeying with it, we start doing things with it. We're like, oh, look how much more effective it is. Look how much better it's doing. Look how many more people are coming, and things like that. And it's like, if we don't know what the church is, we probably have no business messing with it, right? We have no me- business messing with it anyway, right? Reinventing it. There's a few ways that uh, our culture looks at the church, and I've got a little uh, diagram. I made this with clip art myself, okay? <laughs> but um, I know you, the, the laughter, you're impressed. You're like, how does he do it? How does he do this? There's a few different ways people look at the church. One is, some people look at the church as a theater, okay? A place to come and watch and have a worship experience, okay? And some churches actually use those terms. A place to come and watch and have a worship experience. If you think of the church as a theater, then you're an audience of spectators, Okay, that's one way of looking at the church. Another way people look at the church, very common in our culture, is as a marketplace. That the church is a place to come and to financially support and to receive spiritual goods and services. Okay, and if you think of yourself as being in a church that's a marketplace, then you're a consumer. You're a customer. You, you pay in and you get services. Now, this might be something that's a little closer to what you're actually feeling, right? You, you church shop, right? It's your shop because you're a customer looking for a place to give you good services, right? That's one way of looking at the church. But guys, the Bible nowhere, the Bible uses a lot of images for the church. Never does it use theater or marketplace. The Bible does use the term, though, of family. That the church is a family. It's a community of brothers and sisters. And if you see the church that way, then you see yourself as a part of a family laboring together on a mission. And as we look at Acts 11 and 13, what we find is that the church is a family on mission. The church isn't just a family kind of hanging around the dinner table. Church is a family sent out on mission. And uh, that's who we are as a local church. That's who we are in this room, okay? And we're going to look at four practices of the church in Antioch that made it this kind of family on mission. And I'll just give them to you up front. They're sharing Christ, making disciple makers, gathering for worship, and being sent. So those would be the four practices I see in those two chapters. Now remember, when I say these are the four practices of the church, when I say church, I mean you, okay? Because you're like, oh yeah, do they do that? No, no, there's no they. Like, that's you. These are your four practices, okay? Like, focus here, okay? That's what we're doing, okay? First one is sharing Christ. As a church, we're a family that share Christ. That's how Antioch started, by the way. Antioch started with ordinary Christians telling everybody they knew about Jesus. Take a look at verse 19 in chapter 11. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Um, this church in Antioch started from believers fleeing the persecution in Jerusalem. Remember, Stephen gets killed. Um, Saul and others start persecuting the church. These guys flee all the way 300 miles to Antioch. There's no church there. And the church forms because they speak about Jesus. Now, this is strange if you think about it. Just step back and think about what they're doing here. These people just lost everything for sharing Christ. These people had to flee 300 miles on foot 
for sharing Christ. They get to a new place, and what do they do? They share Christ. Can't stop, won't stop, right? These guys will not stop doing this, right? Jesus has changed their lives, and nothing's going to stop them from sharing Christ, even if they end up going another 300 miles away, right? Jesus had changed their lives, and they wanted everybody to know about it. How about you? One secular author uh, advised college students this. I think it's good advice. Find the highest conceivable good and then orient your whole life around it. Have you done that? This New Year's is a good time to think about that, right? Find the highest conceivable good and then orient your whole life around it. That's completely wise. That's what you should do, right? What is your highest conceivable good? Or are you orienting your life around it? Have you written it down? Have you ever taken the time to think about what is the highest conceivable good I could have with my life and write it down? And then think about how to orient your life around it? Wouldn't that be a good idea? How many lives do you have? One, right? Okay, you have a resurrected life later, yes. One here, right? How many years do you have left? Have you thought about what the highest conceivable good for your life is? Have you written it down? Let me share with you the one for our church. You could use this one if you want. This is the one I use. We exist to display and declare the good news of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. I challenge you to find a better one. We exist to display and declare the, glory, the good news of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. You know, these believers had oriented their lives around declaring Christ. Now, they did only the Jews in the beginning, which is kind of natural. They're Jews. They just do it with the Jews. And then some other people show up, and they're like, from Cyprus and Cyrene, they're like, hey, you know, you can tell the gospel of Greek people, too. And they're like, oh, we hadn't thought of that. Let's do that. And they did. And then verse 21 says, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Do you guys see the beautiful simplicity of this? Beautiful simplicity of this. You speak about Christ to lost people, and then the Holy Spirit gives those people faith to believe. And then when they have faith to believe, it says they turn to the Lord. The gospel changes lives, guys. It's very simple. It, doesn't, it isn't always easy. It isn't always drama-free. Uh, it, it can be difficult to do, but the actual thing is easy. It's simple, which is you share Christ and then who changes them? The Holy Spirit, right? Holy Spirit gives them faith, right? We are witnesses. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives the faith to believe. That's what we're seeing here in this passage. It says the hand of the Lord is with them, giving them faith to believe. And I, one of the things I was thinking about with this is, do you guys find it difficult to share Christ? Yes. Um, I'm sure that's true. Um, do you find it difficult because you think about this person you know and you think, this is going to sound so weird to them? You ever think that? Before you give the gospel, you're like, this person is not anywhere in this universe with me, and I'm going to share the gospel, and it seems so weird to them. I want to say to you, don't be intimidated because the good news of Jesus will sound strange to them. It would have sounded very strange to the people in Antioch. Very strange. This was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. This is not a, tobunk, uh, you know, a podunk town. This is, these are educated, affluent, pluralistic people. They were not people that you know, didn't have a religion of their own. They already had something. They already knew what they were doing. And the Christians brought a message that was very strange, but they trusted in the Holy Spirit to change the lives. Isn't that cool? That's what we need to do. Don't worry about how strange it'll sound. Guys, the resistance that people have to the gospel is no match for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the master locksmith of the human heart. He can break in anywhere and does, right? He can break into any heart and free them by the power of the gospel. And so it says the hand of the Lord will be with them. The hand of the Lord will be with us. 
I think as we think about New Year, we think about like, what are we going to do this year? One of the things we want to do is have a pattern of just indiscriminately giving the gospel to people, right? Indiscriminately giving the gospel and the hand of the Lord will be with you. Every one of you guys has been placed strategically. You all have access to people the rest of us don't. Isn't that right? I mean, it's like, it's like a weird, uh, it's like a terrorist cell. We have people everywhere. Okay? We have people everywhere. We have people in every profession. We have people in every neighborhood. We have people everywhere. You have access to people that the rest of us don't. And so let's share the gospel. Let's share the gospel even in the midst of ordinary life drama. You know, sometimes we're like, ah, I got plenty of problems of my own. I can't get involved in other people's lives. These guys were fleeing persecution. They had a 300-mile walk, right? We can share the gospel in the midst of difficulty, whether it's, you know, in the midst of, you know, diaper blowouts, uh, sick children, uh, health issues, family drama, I mean, painful losses. You know, some of the most effective testimonies are going to be from people that are the most beat up, right? Your suffering actually adds a ton of credibility to your testimony, and it will give you so much more joy in your adversity, knowing that your suffering is being used for the spread of the gospel. And so we can do it in drama. Um, perhaps some of you, you know, God has, you know, allowed your life to be shaken up for this exact purpose that you would come to see in a clearer way than you had before, that sharing Christ is the one thing that matters. It's the one thing we're here to do. Some of you older people, you know, you're like, why am I still alive? You know, this is why you're still alive. (laughs) We're still alive here. We still have breath to share Christ with others. Second, we can, we can start um, just by simply caring for other people. I think it's actually a lot easier. And I'm learning from you guys because I hear your conversations that you're having with your neighbors and stuff. So I'm learning a lot about evangelism from you guys. I'm not naturally this way. This is something that I, I learned from hearing your conversations. But you can start as simply as things like, you know, neighbor shares a difficulty and you say, hey, would you like to talk more about that? Would you like me to listen to more about, you know, what's going on in your life? Can I pray for you right now for that? I've done that with a bunch of clients. It's kind of weird. You know, it freaks them out. They love it, though. I mean, you know, they tell me something. Because I'm a veterinarian, they're like, hey, I got this, you know, thing. And, you know, they tell me about their health problems. And I'm like, no, I specifically did not go into that, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm working on horses for a reason. I don't want to hear about that. And, and, but one of the things I found to do is say, hey, can I, can I pray for you for that? And they're like, yes. And I go, can I do it right now? And they're like, oh, okay. And I'll pray for them. Sometimes I do what's called the ninja prayer. Which is, you tell me your problem, and I say, can I pray for you? You don't even answer, and I go, and start praying. Okay? You do modified ninja where you wait for them to speak, but um, you could ask them, hey, you know, can I tell you how Jesus has helped me with that? That's a great thing to be able to do. You actually share the gospel that way. You say, okay, you know, I hear what you're going through. Let me pray for you. Hey, can I tell you how, how Jesus has helped me with similar things? You know, a lot of people would be open to that, and you can share the gospel with them that way. Hey, can I send you something to listen to about that? And then feel free to text me and say, Eric, can I send it? What, what can I send him? You know, I'm happy to help with that. Um, would you like to join me at church this Sunday? And we had one particular person I can think of this year. A friend invited him. He's a very low point. Come Sunday, got saved that day. Um, and his life has not been the same since. And it happened last year. Um, you you want to come with me to Bible study. You know, some people are more willing to do that. But that's what we're here to do. And the cool thing is, guys, we don't have to do this alone. We do this as a family on mission together. You don't have to have all the answers. If you are, most people are not going to ask you a difficult question. You think they are, but they're probably not. And if they do, we have all kinds of brainy people to answer these questions. I mean, Scott would be a great go-to. There is no question Scott can't answer, okay? Or Dan Marino. I mean, we've got multiple options here, not the sports guy. 
the guy that's here. But he, he would have all kinds of answers for us too. I mean, Gabe, there's tons of people you could ask. Hey, I got to ask this question. People are not going to think it's strange if you said to them, you know, that's a good question. Let me just, let me find out. I'll get you an answer. They're not going to be like, oh, well, if you don't have it on tap, this doesn't hold. No, no, they're going to be fine with that. Um, and I love how many of you guys are doing this. I mean, once again, this kind of stirred up from talking to you and hearing your conversations. But the church in Antioch grew by ordinary Christians sharing their faith, not by pastors. It doesn't appear they had any pastors yet, which is interesting. Take a look at verse 22. Jerusalem sent a, past, a pastor. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They're like, oh, wow, that's interesting. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad, and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Isn't that cool? Only after the church actually formed, you know, Jerusalem sends them uh, their first pastor, and it was Barnabas. And he's a great choice because it says he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And you think, okay, well, what does that look like? What would it look like for me to be full of the Holy Spirit and of faith? Well, he says here, he gives a description of it. Barnabas knew how to point out evidences of grace. Look at verse 23. When he came, he saw the grace of God and he was glad. So he's the kind of guy that looks out at a bunch of Christians and doesn't just think like, man, these people are a mess. Look at all the deficiencies. That's not the kind of guy Barnabas was. I mean, of course he noticed where the deficiency was. But the first thing he saw was like, look at the grace of God. Guys, you cannot overemphasize the grace of God. The grace of God saves and transforms people. There's no such thing as being imbalanced by having too much of the grace of God or emphasizing the grace of God too much. It's not a thing. Because the grace of God not only saves people, it transforms them. And Barnabas knew how to encourage that growth. Look at verse 23. He exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And verse 24 says, and a great many were added. And what's interesting, what Barnabas does next is, even though he's gifted... And even though things are going well, what does he do? He looks for help. Because he knows that no pastor should be leading a church by himself. And so he goes out and he goes looking for Saul. Now Saul had gotten converted. He was going by the name Paul also. And um, he got converted. And so Barnabas, he goes looking for him. He goes 100 miles away to Tarsus and finds Saul and brings him back. And, um, and it says that they, they together, verse 26, taught the church. They met with the church and taught him. I just love that, this team approach of, of leading the church. Even a guy like Barnabas wants help. And, so they, and they have a plan, and what do they do? They, they make disciple makers. So that's the second practice. First practice, sharing Christ. Second practice we have as a church is making disciple makers. Um, that's what we do. Verse 26. Take a look at verse 26. What is the primary identity of us? Like, what's the primary term for us? Because we're called a lot of things. We're called saints, brothers and sisters, Christians, disciples. There's a bunch of terms for Christians, right? What's our primary description? Take a look at verse 26. It says, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, this might seem like a trick question. What were they called first? They were first called, okay, but in this verse, first called disciples. Notice that. The term Christian comes later, right? The first term for, for Christians was disciples. This term Christian came later. This is really important because our primary identity is that we are disciples, okay? We're students. 
We're learners. Do you think of yourself that way? That you're learning to do everything that Jesus has commanded. So you are a disciple. You're a learner. You're his student. You're, you're learning to do everything Jesus has commanded by the power of the Spirit. Jesus is your master. You're his student. Uh, which means we have a lot to learn, right? And it's not a surprise. People say, like, oh, what kind of Christian are you? I'm a student of Jesus. I pick the most difficult master to have. The most amazing example. <laughs> Trying to follow Jesus and so, of course, I fall short greatly, but you're a student of Jesus. And this is really important, guys, because all true Christians are disciples. And there are no true, there are no, um, true Christians that are not disciples. It's really important. Somebody might ask you, hey, are you a Christian? You're like, oh, of course I'm a Christian. I'm American, you know? And, and somebody might say to you, well, are you a disciple of Jesus? And you're like, hmm, I don't know. They're the same, okay? So all true Christians are disciples, and so maybe that's something that would be helpful for you to ask a person, like, hey, you know, are you Christian? Yeah. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Be interesting, because the answer should be the same. We're learning to do all the things he's commanded, which is a tall order. And so we're learning how to apply the gospel. We're learning how to live in the power of the Spirit. We're disciples. And Jesus has told us that as disciples, we're all to be disciple makers. Matthew 28 says this, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always. That's our mission, guys, as a church. It's so funny because churches talk a lot about like writing a mission statement and like, hey, what's our mission? And they spend a ton of time on it. Maybe they hire consultants. It's in Matthew 28, okay? Like, you're like, what's the mission? It's actually a mission that he gave us, right? It's to make disciples. That's what we're to do. Every Christian is a disciple that's called to be a disciple maker. And I know that a lot of this is like, for some of you guys, this is like, oh yeah, I knew that. For some of you, you're like, wait, that's what it's about? Yeah, the church is not to be an audience of spectators, but a family of disciple makers. And the role of pastors and leaders is not to do the ministry, but to equip you for ministry. And Ephesians talks about that. Jesus said that he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers for what? To equip the saints, that's you, for the work of ministry. And so Barnabas and, and Paul, that's what they're doing there. They're equipping disciple makers. You know how I know that? I know that because a year later they could confidently leave them. Isn't that interesting? So Barnabas gets to church, brings in Paul, and in a year they can confidently leave. Why? Because they're disciple makers. They were making disciples that can make disciples. Um, and so, and, and I know, guys, this is like completely counterintuitive to our church culture because none of this makes sense if you believe the church is a theater or a marketplace. If it's a theater or marketplace, then, then you're a spectator or a customer. But when you're, in, when you're in a family, you know you're not a spectator or customer. Did you ever try when you're growing up to act like a customer or a spectator at home? What'd your mama do? Right? She's like, you know, like, hey, why don't, we, why don't I have this service or that service? Or, you know, what did she do? She was eating like, let you get away with that, right? And what's cool is when we live as a church family, we don't let you get away with that either. Okay? So, like, I don't know if you've noticed, if you've been here for a little while, like, somebody handed you, like, a mop, or they handed you some chairs, or, or something like that. And I know, I know that's not, like, the most, you know, attractional thing to do as a church, but I really believe it's biblical. I mean, I think I can show you that from this passage. In a family, everyone's involved with the work of the family. And, uh, and, and if you try to act like a spectator or, or consumer, 
you know, like, we're going to give you that look your mom gave you. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, if you start going like, hey, you know, I don't understand why we don't offer this or that or this, you know what I'm going to say? You volunteering? That's usually, you guys know that. You guys have already experienced this. Like, hey, why don't we have this or this? Oh, it sounds like you have a calling. That's great. So you want to be ahead of that or what? You know, and it's like, no, no, no. I thought, you know, I thought the church would do this. And I'm like, well, who did you mean? Did you mean me? Did you mean Wayne? Like, who is, who's the church? Who's going to do it? Right? I know. It's crazy. Which means, guys, and I know that this is the case, it, which means that some people will come here and they're looking for theater or marketplace and they won't last long. And a consumer or a spectator, they want amenities, entertainment, and anonymity. Okay? Like, you guys know in this room, you're not getting anonymity. Because you're like, oh, you know, I just want to go to church where like, I don't talk to anybody, just come in, leave. But it's a family. There's no anonymity offered. There's no amenities offered. There's no, I know, this is a great sales pitch. There's no entertainment offered, right? Okay? Because we're a family, okay? And, and because the church wasn't designed to be that. We have designed this gathering this way for a reason. To send a message, which is that we don't offer any of those things, Right? And we don't offer those things not because we don't like people that are spectators and consumers and things like that. It's not that we don't like them. We like them a lot. We actually want something better for them. We want what the Bible is offering as a church. And guys, we don't offer the role of spectator or consumer in our church because that's not a step in the discipleship process. So you don't want to offer that as a church. You don't want to offer the role of spectator or consumer in a church because it's not on the discipleship process. Right? And you, I don't know if you guys have ever heard this before, but what you win them with, you win them to. Have you ever heard that before? What you win people on the street with, you win them to. We do not want to win them to consumer or spectator. They're already won to that, okay? Like, that's not necessary. It's already been done. What we want to win them to, we want to win the lost to the gospel, and we want to win Christians to disciple-making, right? You see that? It, there's no point in, like, acting like you're going to give them something, they come and then try to kind of maneuver them into serving. Like, it just doesn't work that way. Once you're in a kind of, a, you've been trained to want amenities and entertainment and anonymity, it's very hard to make a person from there into a disciple maker. Because you, you kind of lied to them. You said, oh yeah, we're all about meeting your needs. And then you're like, hey, by the way, like, we're disciple makers and we're not doing that. It's like, yeah, we'll be up front. Just be straightforward. Plus, guys, it takes a huge staff and a lot of money to provide services to a church full of consumers. Okay? That's actually, you guys, do, you guys think you'll want it, but you don't want it. Because what you'll find is you'll have hundreds, maybe thousands of people on your back that you have to staff to keep them all happy, to provide them services, and it takes a ton of money to do that. Or your other option is, is that you could have a church full of disciple makers. Right? People that are looking to reach the community, and that would be far better. It's just way better overall. The other one's easier to grow, but the, the, it's a dead end, guys. The church, in, and that means that, and this is exciting, I think, for you, the church is your ministry, okay? This, guys, is a gathering of your ministry. Let us know what you need to do your ministry, okay? So if you're, you know, looking to share the gospel with certain people, disciple certain people, let us know what you're doing. We would love to equip you, we would love to train you. We would love to coach you. We'd love to give you anything that you need to do your ministry, right? This is your ministry. This is a gathering of disciple makers. And um, one simple way I do it, just so you know, like when I think about discipling another person and making a disciple maker, I like to get together with them like weekly 
And what I'll do is I'll go through a book of the Bible. It's very simple. It requires very few tools. Tools you already have. Um, you can tell them, hey, here's 10 verses of 1 Peter. Give me five things you like, five questions you have. And then we do that. And then if there's any other life things they want to talk about, we talk about that. It's that simple. Okay? It's very simple. And what's cool about this way of doing church is this is reproducible. So if you were going to go to a closed country, quote-unquote, a country that's difficult, a country that's dangerous, you could actually do this. Because you're like, you don't have to bring your fog machine. You don't have to bring your like, fancy backgrounds. I mean, it's not like tons of containers of things, right? You know, that you would need to do this. It's very simple. It's the scripture. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the gospel. Um, discipleship, guys, involves learning both sound doctrine and sound living, right? And the believers in Antioch saw this. Take a look at verse 27. This is really cool. So they're being discipled. They're, they're becoming disciple makers. And in verse 27, it says, Now in the days, and on these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the land. This took place in the days of Claudius. So listen to this. So who decided to send relief? Look, look at this. This is cool. So the disciples determined, right? The disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers who were living in Judea. And they did this by the hands, they sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Isn't that cool? That's the outcome of discipleship. They're learning to do everything Jesus commanded, including taking care of the poor. And what's cool is they knew it. They heard about it and they're like, well, we should send something, right? And they sent it by him. So to be a family on mission like the Church of Antioch, we want to share the gospel, make disciple makers, and thirdly, gather for worship. And, and I think this is something that's lacking in our culture as well. In our culture, if you go to church twice a month, like you're a regular attender, okay? Like, does that fly at CrossFit? It doesn't, does it? What happens? They come to your house, beat you, rough you up, right? And bring you over to the gym, right? It doesn't work that way, right? Because, you know, you guys realize that the word church is ecclesia, which means gathering. Like, the word means you get together. So you're like, you really can't be a part of a church unless you go there, right? It's super important. And uh, preaching to the choir, right? There you are. Um, but seriously, they gathered for worship. Look at verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 1. Acts 13, 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menea, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they worshipped the Lord and fasted, a little description of their worship service. And one of the things I want to do with you real quick, just as a side note, is did you notice the diversity there of these people? Like here in Antioch, it's really cool. There's, there's, there's a real diversity here because your family might not have much diversity, but God's family does. There's ethnic diversity. You see Jews and Gentiles gathered. In, in verse 1, this uh, Simeon and Lucius, these people are both very likely from Africa. There was socioeconomic diversity. You see the powerful and the powerless. That Menea, he was a lifelong friend of Herod's. Okay, this guy has some power, right? He wasn't his poor friend next door, right? This is a guy that had some significant power, at least he used to before he was a Christian. Did you guys know that the Church of Jesus is the most diverse, multi-ethnic, multicultural movement in all of human history? Did you guys know that? It's legit, right? The Church is the most diverse, multi-ethnic, multicultural movement in all of human history. It started super diverse from the beginning and only gets more diverse. At, at Pentecost, there were already believers that were from Iran, Iraq, Turkey, Egypt. In the first century, there were already churches in Egypt. 
In the second century, uh, there were churches further into Africa, in Sudan and Tunisia. This is in the, the second century. Last year, they found a church in sub-Saharan Africa that was actually, uh, there were ruins from the fourth century. There were Christians in sub-Saharan Africa in the fourth century. There were Christians there before Constantine, okay? Did you guys realize that the the nation that's now Ethiopia was a Christian nation before Rome was a Christian nation? You guys realize this? We had this weird idea that like went, Jerusalem, Europe, and then thousand years later, we decided to swing back around. It's not the way it went. It spread throughout the area. You guys realize that the church fathers Tertullian, Origen, Athanasius, and Augustine were all from Africa? Do you guys realize that? You think, like, that's wild, right? Um, there were Christians in India by the 3rd century. There were uh, Christians in China by the 8th century. Today, the church is even more diverse. Do you guys realize there's over 68 million Christians in China? You guys realize that more Christians gather for worship on a Sunday in China than in Western Europe? It's crazy. It's harder, too, by the way, (laughs) to do that. Um, In 10 years, there will be more Christians in China than the U.S. There's this whole shift to the global south, right? Korea sends more missionaries than any other country except ours. Korea. This is not like, this is Korea, right? Last, you guys realize last century that Africa went from 10 million Christians to 360 million Christians in a century. This is the biggest like shift ever like that. Half the continent claims Christ. So the center of Christianity has moved down to the, to the global south, which has been fun for the Methodists, right? Did you hear about the Methodists splitting? The reason why they're splitting over, uh, uh, over the gay issue is because the American ones really want to be super liberal and not believe what the Bible says about same-sex relationships, right? The African ones are like, no. That, they got voted out. So it's like, we've we got to split from those guys. Isn't that interesting? The, the, the missions has actually backfired on them because now they can't go as liberal as they'd like to because all these people who have come to Christ in the global south are saying, no way, the Bible says this. Right? And this whole movement of diversity is headed to Revelation 7. In Revelation 7, it says, And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Isn't that awesome? That gathering, that worship gathering, will be the most diverse gathering in human history. And that's where missions is headed. And our gathering here, guys, is a a rehearsal for that. And it reminds us, guys, that missions is about worship. The reason why missions exist is because we want to call more and more people to worship Jesus. You guys realize that's the core reason? Missions exist for worship. We're trying to gather as many people from as many nations as possible to worship Jesus. And that church in Antioch was devoted to gathering for worship. And what's so cool is when they devoted themselves to gathering together as a church, God spoke. Look at verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, God uses this gathering to disciple his people, to equip his people, and to send his people. God actually does this through the ordinary means of grace. I don't know if that's a term you're familiar with. God equips disciples and sends his people through the ordinary means of grace. Ordinary means like our gathered worship time in the word, our time of prayer, our time of singing, our time of taking the sacraments, 
right? In these ordinary things, God disciples us and he, and he stirs us up and he sends us. He does it through our fellowship. We got like an hour after service where we're all together and people are using their gifts. Please stick around for that. And, and that's what God's doing every Sunday, guys. Worship matters. Do you come to worship expecting to meet with the living God and being sent out by him? That's what this is about. That's what this is about. And we can't do it anywhere else. And I'm not just saying that because I'm the one talking. Like, we can't do that anywhere else. People are like, oh, well, we could, you know, we can do it at Starbucks with just a couple of us. God doesn't do it that way. He's told us how he wants to do it. He does it through the ordinary gathering of his people. And that's what happened, fourth practice in Acts 13, is he sent them. This is the fourth practice, is being sent. During a regular worship service, the Holy Spirit told them it was time to send out Two of their treasured friends. Look at verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and sent them out. It, guys, this is the crazy thing. So check this out. So the devil goes, I'm going to destroy the church. Right? And so Stephen gets martyred. And the devil actually uses a guy named Saul to try to destroy the church. They scatter. They're scattering plants at church called Antioch, which is the church God uses to send out the same guy as a missionary. <laughs> is this the craziest thing in the world? God's purposes will stand, okay? God's mission is unstoppable. That's bizarre. There's like, that's like a little flourish he just did just for fun. Like, hey guys, I wonder if anybody would catch this, you know? It's amazing, right? So here's Paul being sent out by the church that his persecution actually started. God's purposes stand. And it makes sense, guys, that they would be sent out during worship because it's in worship, guys, that we see the beauty of God and the beauty of the gospel. And our hearts are made willing, aren't they? Don't you feel like right after you've worshipped the Lord together with his people, you're willing? Remember Isaiah, he sees God in Isaiah 6 on the throne. And what's his response? Before, after he says, woe is me and gets forgiven, what's his response? Send me. Isn't that cool? That's what worship does. When worship really occurs in our hearts, we see the beauty and the glory of God and the gospel, and we say, send me, right? Send me. It makes our hearts willing. Send me to my home with new gospel intentionality to, to really lead my family and disciple my kids. Send me to my neighborhood to finally find out, like, who is that guy that lives next to me, and does he know Christ? Send me right? Send me to my workplace. Send me to my neighborhood. Send me to, to share Christ and make disciples. And for some of you guys, and I think it's going to be more, and I think you guys need to be open to this, it's going to be send me to the nations, right? Just like this happened. I pray that in this service, in the services to come, worship services, in this place, that God does exactly what happened in this pastor. Where somebody is being, you know, maybe God's using adversity in your life to kind of like shake you up and maybe pull your roots a little bit loose, so that you could be planted in a different land for the purpose of the gospel. Guys, worship makes us willing. Guys, isn't it cool how simple and beautiful and powerful the church is? I mean, this is, this is amazing. So we share Christ in our changed lives, and the Holy Spirit gives them faith. Like, we intentionally make disciples, and the Holy Spirit makes fruit in their lives. Um, it's just amazing. And then as we gather, guys, the Holy Spirit makes it clear, our calling clear, and sends us out. And that's what we're here to do. We're here to worship Christ, to see a beautiful picture of who he is, and then to just be driven out, to be driven out to share and disciple others. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, guys, is a family meal. 
1 Corinthians 10 says that the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread and we who are many are one body, for we partake of the one bread. And this is only for those who are trusting in Jesus. If you're trusting Jesus for forgiveness and you've turned from your sin, we invite you to come up and take this bread and this cup. And the Lord's Supper, guys, reminds us that God the Son saw us in our hopeless state and said, send me. Right? He saw us in our hopeless state of sin and slavery and he said, send me. And the bread reminds us that he gave his own physical body his own physical body on the cross for us, that he was pierced for our transgressions, that he was crucified on our behalf. The cup reminds us that he gave his own blood to wipe away all of our sins, so that there is no sin in this room that is more powerful than the blood of Jesus. And if you're trusting in Jesus and you've come here with a burden of sin, confess that sin, he is faithful and just to remove that sin. That's what communion reminds us of. It reminds us that every single sin has been removed and that we've been adopted into his global family. You're a picture of that. You know, your picture, you're in Revelation 7 when Christ returns and all his people are gathered. And I, I would just say one other thing too, as we take communion this Sunday, it might make sense to you to invite somebody else to take communion with you. Somebody that's not in your family. Somebody that's sitting next to you. Let's take it as, as a family. Let's pray and we'll have the worship team come up. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your son. We thank you for the the gift of the church, that we don't have to do this alone, that we shouldn't do this alone, and that you've gathered a worshiping people to be sent out to all the lost to hear the good news about Jesus. And we're just so thankful that you've done that for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.com. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.